Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. All of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly to the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Wow, it sounded like a voice from on high. It's good to see you all here today. Thank you, seriously. Uh, I know the roads are treacherous. It's really uh, cold out. Uh, it's good to be able to come together to worship and gather together with each other around God's Word. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about my uh, mom recently as uh, we had a uh, staff and our elder executive board got together for Christmas party and uh, white elephant gift exchange. And my mom loved Christmas. Uh, she loved the lights. She loved the music. She loved Christmas carols. She loved the parties. She loved the celebration of Jesus' birth. And uh, she loved, I don't know if she loved it, but for us, uh, she was the source for our white elephant gifts. And we have felt her lack since she passed away last year. Uh, over the years, uh, we received things like uh, a wooden coat hanger that was shaped like a duck, and the duck's bill was supposed to like, go over the rod and, and your clothes would hang on his wings. Uh, one of those uh, dancing soda cans, remember those? You put in front of the radio or your music and it would dance around in, in beat with uh, whatever was coming out. Um, a two-hour VHS recording of a wood fire burning. We already had a wood-burning fireplace. Uh, for my brother one year, I think this one topped them all. She got him a little uh, coffee table, and, and he was a golfer, and he was a sportscaster for a number of years, uh, a little coffee table, and the legs of it were two actual legs covered in golf pants and a golf club. 
It was something to see. Mom was a character. She was uh, a singer, she was a pianist, she was an organist, she, uh, she loved parties, she loved being the life of the party, she loved being the center of attention. And my mom moved here to an assisted living facility uh, near us uh, in 2016 when we came to Indianapolis. She'd been in failing health for a number of years. She couldn't see or hear very well anymore and uh, her body was really kind of crippled. Uh, with painful rheumatoid arthritis. Her memory wasn't what it used to be. Uh, That meant uh, a number of things. She couldn't drive anymore. She couldn't communicate very well. uh, And and just trying to talk with her and get things across was um, difficult at best. Uh, Honestly, uh, frustrating would be a good word for it. Which meant I would get frustrated with her at times having to yell the same instructions week after week uh, about how to fill out the lunch menu or having to explain uh, over and over again how to operate the TV remote or trying to convince her that she didn't have the money or the space to buy another piece of furniture to put in her small little room because she was a hoarder and, and if something was on sale, she had to have it. going to the store for the very specific kinds of hangers that she asked for that had to look exactly like this and have this kind of coating on it and then bringing them to her and having her tell us, no, those aren't the hangers I wanted. Take them back and get different ones. Okay, mom. It tested my patience. And I often failed that test. Many times uh, I'd get upset with her Sometimes I would feel like I didn't want to go see her. And I have way too many memories of snapping at her impatiently or responding with sarcasm. Maybe you have memories like that, ways that you've treated people, things that you've said that you wish you could take back, choices you'd do over, angry, hurtful words that like toothpaste that you squeeze out of the tube, once it's out, it never goes back in. Do you ever wonder about those things? If if there really is not just forgiveness for those things, but but healing. Could, Could the shame of those things ever really go away in a way so that we could be honest about who we are and what we've done in a way that gives life instead of condemnation? Is, is there anything that we can do to, to make it right, to live differently, to find peace? In this central section of the book of Hebrews that we've been going through, the, the writer has been uh, obviously showing over and over again the supremacy of Christ, how Jesus is greater. And through this intentional repetition, the superiority of Christ and this new covenant, this new relationship, this new way of being people with God. And now here in chapter 9, he's showing this contrast to something that uh, I think we can all relate to, a guilty conscience. If you haven't already, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're looking at those first 14 verses. No matter how young we are, no matter how old we are, I think we all know what it is to have a sense of 
guilt for what we've done and a sense of shame for being the kind of people that would do that sort of thing. The Bible says that the conscience is a kind of an internal faculty that reflects our understanding of moral truth, of the existence of right and wrong, that we're built with that innately. And, and conscience tells us that we're not just material beings, but we are moral beings. And all of us know how well, painfully how well, we are capable of violating even our own sense of right and wrong, much less what God says. That sense of feeling guilty and, and ashamed is really complex, isn't it? I mean, even as children, we experience the, the sense of having done something wrong when we hurt another person or we take a treat that we weren't supposed to, we disobey our parents, and we can't at that age articulate why we feel bad about it, but we run off and hide sometimes maybe. And, and our parents' voices now bring fear and anxiety instead of peace and love and joy and comfort. We feel unworthy, we feel wrong in ourselves, and that's a reflection of what the writer of the Hebrews has been talking about here for these last several chapters. Because we know deep down ultimately that it's not just other people that we've hurt, but we're estranged from God. That we are separated because of what we've done and what we've become. And one answer to that, our world says, is, well, time heals all wounds. I've heard it the other way, and you know, you hope that's true. Time wounds all heals, and we hope that there is an ultimate day of justice. But do I really want that day of justice? Because what if I'm one of the heals that's going to be wounded? Does the passage of time really heal our wounded consciences? Does it really relieve the burden? Maybe it does, and, and maybe that's not even good news if you think about it. Maybe, maybe we should be bothered by the fact that we're not as bothered by the burden and the shame of what we've done sometimes because we can deaden our consciences, the Bible says. We can sear our consciences. It's easy to say that those things that God says are about those Christians out there when we really should be glad that the church is full of broken, messed up, fallible people because I'm one of them. What maybe should bother me is the fact how seldom and how hard it is for us to tell the truth about ourselves. Like it's, you know, we have it together and it's those other people, those people out in the world or even those other Christians that just need to clean up their acts. They're the ones that are giving Jesus a bad name and making a mess of everything. And we miss the subtlety of the shades of those same sins that infect us, the greed, the lust, the pride, the anger. Well, the writer of the Hebrews starts with this uh, dense uh, description of the old covenant regulations for worship and this, this tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And, and if you were listening to it as Anne-Marie was reading through it, you could almost kind of smell the musty odor coming off of it. It sounds so long ago and so far away, but there's a purpose that the writer is getting to. 
there's this description of the tabernacle that was basically just a, a really fancy tent that served as the place where God was, in a sense, locally present among his people and where his worship was centered. It was an earthly place of holiness, the writer says. And the writer focuses on kind of these uh, two areas. There was, a, there was an outer courtyard where most of the people would be for worship, but what he really focuses on are these two inner parts, the, the holy place that was only entered by the priests, and then the holy of holies, or the most holy place that was only entered by the high priest, it was separated from the people by a curtain, and he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, where he had to make sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. And he talks about the elements, the, the worship instruments, implements that were in that area. The altar of incense was really kind of a picture of God's communication with his people because the priests would offer up incense and prayers as they were, and as the smoke ascended, it was like carrying the people's request to God. And, and the ark in the most holy place was the symbol of God's very presence with his people. Inside was, he says, the jar of manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tables of the covenant, the commandments, the reminder of God's will, God's direction for his people. It's kind of hard for us to connect with that. Think about... Um, if you took all the symbols of American history and American culture, maybe the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and um, Mount Rushmore and the Liberty Bell and uh, you know, a bald eagle and, and the national anthem and uh, maybe the flag that we planted on the moon and, uh, and, and you wrapped all of that together and put them in one place, and in kind of a very crude and inadequate way, that's, that's what you have going on here in the tabernacle. All of this is telling a story. All of this is about shaping God's people and, and pointing them to something greater, pointing them to what they're supposed to be about, and pointing them ultimately to the majesty and the glory and the power and the holiness and the mercy of an awesome God. Because the writer goes on in verses 6 to 10 to talk about what's happening in the tabernacle. He talks about uh, the bread and uh, the table, the presence, and every day the priests would enter the holy place and burn incense and offer those prayers. But the really important thing happened once a year on this day of atonement when the high priest only had to offer the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle himself and then go in the holy place and, and sprinkle the mercy seat of the ark representing that the people's sins were covered and that God would pass over their sins and accept the sacrifice of the animal in their place. And what's the point of all this? Well, this whole reality that, that there's all these regulations and there's a holy place that most people couldn't go into and the, and the most holy place where only the high priest could go. It's symbolic, the writer says in verses 8 and 9, of this present age. It was a, a temporary situation, an arrangement, he says meaning the age that he's writing to for his readers. And it was a picture of the way things were until Christ came. It was underscoring that, 
This Old Testament system, for all its glory, for all its grandeur, for all the good and necessary part that it played in God's purposes, couldn't do what needed to be done. Because this tabernacle and the system only provided a limited access to God. I mean, that's so important here. You didn't get to go directly to God yourself unless you were a priest, and then you didn't even get directly into God's presence unless you got chosen to be the one high priest once a year. You were off at a distance, and God was way up there. And it had a limited effectiveness. Because the writer points out again that in verse 9, did you see that? The, the gifts and sacrifices that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They, they could provide sort of a temporary covering. It, it provided an external and a limited cleansing for God's people. And, a, and there was a limited pardon, a limited forgiveness, because every week the priest had to offer the sacrifices over and over again. And every year the high priest has to keep going back into the most holy place. And as long as that curtain still stands, the writer says in verse 8, the way into the holy places is not yet opened. As long as that curtain is still separating God's people from God, access to God is closed off and our, and our consciences can never be cleansed. We're left carrying the weight of the guilt and the shame. And I think we know that our consciences aren't going to be cleansed by religious rituals, by religious rites and performance. I think we get that, and yet I think there's still this religious impulse in us. We talked about last week that, that, that says, maybe there's something I can do, maybe just give me the formula Tell me the secret that will give me life, that will give me peace. Uh, a recent New York Times bestseller by Rachel Hollis is Girl, Wash Your Face. The book offers some creative, engaging stories and uh, some applications to address struggles that women face. And uh, in a review, one writer says, Hollis is very gifted, she's very relatable, and she encourages people to, to take control of their lives and their happiness. And the way that we do that is through self-love and self-care. That's what gives us a successful and a happy life. Get some therapy, drink some alcohol, or don't. Take a relaxing vacation, lose some weight. Get rid of the things that don't bring you joy. And that will give you peace. That will give you life. It makes sense. It's practical. That, that, there's good advice in there. But she's building off the wrong foundation. Listen to what Christian blogger Alicia Illion says about Hollis's advice. You can eat all the kale. You can buy all the things. You can lift all the weights, take all the trips, have all the experiences, trash all that doesn't spark joy, wash your face, and hustle like mad. But if you do not rest your soul in Jesus, you will never know peace or purpose. Without Jesus, it's all just a modern, secularized version of what the writer calls dead religious works. It's all on you. It's up to you to eat healthy enough, to exercise enough, to plan out your future, 
to set your goals and make them happen, and then you will have peace, and then you will have life. Now, there are things that we can do and that maybe we ought to do to take better care of ourselves, to love and care for ourselves appropriately. But our best life happens through knowing and following Jesus. That's what the writer is getting at. Only Jesus is the one who will meet you in broken places. Only Jesus is the one who will break the power that sin has over you. Jesus is the one who can promise success, not in self-reliance, not in worldly accomplishments, but in daily surrender as we trust him to take us through the hard things into a real life and a real joy. That's what the writer is getting at here in this third and most important section of this passage. Because that old system of religious works cannot perfect our consciences. We can never experience peace or life with God through what we do. The old covenant can only point forward to what needs to be done and what God has done for us in Christ. All this points, as the writer says in verse 10, to the time of reformation. Now, that word in the Greek is an interesting one. It means straightening out, correcting, resetting. Look at how the the writer describes it. Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And then through the greater and more perfect tent, not one made with hands, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, And if I could encourage you to underline something in your Bible, I mean, maybe not the Pew Bible, but whatever. (laughs) Memorize it. He has secured for us an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. Now, what does that mean? What is the writer getting at? God's response to our guilt in the old covenant was that sin was atoned for once a year. And now, through his own perfect blood, Jesus has once and for all secured an eternal redemption for us. And he has also dealt with our shame. Because once a year, the people would have the blood of that sacrificial goat or bull sprinkled on them to say your sins are covered and you have to keep going back again and again and again. But did you see what he says about Jesus? He has procured for us an eternal redemption because if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if they sanctified for the purification of the flesh, if they could provide that outward symbolic rescue, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our consciences? Do you hear what the writer is saying there? Jesus Christ is the end of shame the end of condemnation, the end of having to hear 
that voice inside me saying, I can't believe I did that. Why did I make that choice? Why did I say that? Why did I go down that path again? Why am I this way? Jesus enters into that with us because Christ's blood now purifies our consciences. And it's not just a legal fiction that God declares here. He's now in the process of making us what he declares us to be. Did you see that in the end of verse 14? He's purifying our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. He's purifying us from every dead end and false direction and sinful temptation to serve and follow the living God. That's what redemption is. Redemption means to rescue, but it also means to restore and renew. That's what Jesus Christ is doing in us as we follow him. Jesus takes the things that have been marred and broken and twisted and corrupted, and he restores them to their intended glory and purpose. You know, in uh, TV dramas or movies, uh, you know, romantic comedies, sometimes one of the characters will say something like this to one another. Can't we just go back to the way things were before all this happened? Maybe you've said or, or thought something like that yourself. It's usually a sign that the person saying that has yet to face up to the reality of what they've done and who they've become. And th that cliche is offered up as sort of a solution, a band-aid to some kind of trauma or brokenness or pain that's been experienced. People have been estranged. They've been hurt. They've been misunderstood. They want to heal. They're trying to apologize and move forward. And they want the bad times to give way to good times by pretending that the bad times never happened. Let's just rewind the clock and, and go back to, you know, a week ago when I said that stupid thing and, and we'll just, we'll go back to the last save point and start over. I wish life worked that way sometimes. That's a false kind of reconciliation. Because pain can be repressed, but I don't think it can ever really be erased. Real healing comes through self-awareness, embracing the causes, the roots of what we've done, and how those things change us. And that's kind of pictured in this Japanese mending craft of kintsugi. It literally means golden joinery. Kintsugi is the practice of mixing lacquer resin with gold powder, and the art has become known for taking broken pottery, broken objects, and turning them to pieces that were more beautiful than the original. It flows from a perspective that imperfections and fractures don't mean the end of that object's life or usefulness. They're in fact an essential part of its story. That the flaws aren't hidden, but highlighted and recognized for what they say about the history and the life of that object. 
And in, in a way, it's kind of picturing the, the spiritual truth that repair requires transformation. That in some ways, the redeemed is even more beautiful than the pristine. And the true shape of us is revealed in how we are fractured and repaired. Not by pretending that we've never been scarred or that we've never hurt anyone. Think of the scars on your body. Think of the, the scratches on your car, maybe. Or the, the dents and dings. Or the tears and, and the stains on an old book that you really love. They all give that object character. They're, they're symbols that say something significant has happened and it's part of the story. You know, a, a clean new kid's blanket is nice and it's great, but if your kids are like mine, they will probably never get rid of the raggedy, torn, stained blanket that they've had since they were a toddler. Because of the memories and the story of their lives that is connected with it. Christ has provided an eternal redemption, renewal, restoration for us. That means that nothing we experience is beyond his ability to put back together and in fact turn it into something more beautiful. God doesn't take the pain or the scars away, but he uses them to turn us into more Christ-like people. He works through the pain and the loss to transform us into something even more glorious. I mean, that's the story of the cross, isn't it? And if we are followers of Jesus and his cross, that's what he's doing in us. I've seen it over and over so many times in followers of Jesus, that, that a profound loss turns into a grief recovery ministry. That care for post-abortive women has grown out of people's sense of pain and regret. And it's become part of their story now that they talk about to try and bring healing and life to other people. Th that we could advocate for justice because it's grown out of our awareness of being treated unfairly, or maybe, maybe our self-awareness of how others have suffered, perhaps, at our hands. Christ's eternal redemption means nothing, nothing is beyond his forgiveness, and nothing is beyond his ability to help us face the truth about ourselves, too. We can listen humbly to others about what our sin has cost them and how they really experience us. Listen to what Martin Luther King Jr. says in his letter from Birmingham jail and see if any of it might be applicable. I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate Christian I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizens' council, not the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, 
to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Now, maybe we're not individually racist, at least by what we can tell of ourselves. But maybe we fall into easy stereotyping of other people who are different from us, whether that's politically or racially or socially. Sometimes we can lump people that disagree with us in, into one big category. All oh, those Black Lives Matter people are all just a big violent hate group. We don't need to listen to them. We don't use our faith or our values maybe enough to speak out for the weak and the marginalized and the oppressed. When we don't want to hear evidence of both historic and ongoing systemic racism in our country because it angers us, it threatens us, it challenges the story that we want to believe about ourselves. I've had to confront this myself because I, I grew up in a time and a place where uh, in, in the 80s in the South, in junior high, in high school, in college, there was just a lot of casual racism that was spoken out loud. And that shaped me. It became a part of me and how I looked at other people. And it's been a process of years of God helping to undo that. But beyond just that, at an individual level, you know, it can be easy for us to, to see problems of crime and poverty and, and broken homes in poor inner-city neighborhoods. But we don't often acknowledge that there's an enduring wealth and income and education gap that benefits us. And we place all the communities of problems of the black community back on themselves, even though in some cases we've been involved in drawing all the resources, all the money, all the tax revenue, all the leadership out of those communities. And what do we expect to happen when children grow up in poverty and broken schools and broken homes and no jobs and poor prospects for the future? As followers of Jesus, I think it cannot be good enough for us, that society works pretty well for people who look like us and have had all our advantages. We have the privilege of being treated the way everyone in society ought to be treated and should be treated. And that gives us a platform to listen and speak up on behalf of those who aren't treated the way they should be treated as people made in the image of God. If we really love, for example, our, our black and our brown brothers and sisters, Jesus having purchased an eternal redemption for us means it's okay for us. It's safe for us to hear what they're saying about their experience in our country. We can't be afraid to be honest with how we may be much more like the white moderates that Dr. King pictured than we want to admit. I don't know. It's, it's worthy of at least thinking about, isn't it? We can do that because Jesus has provided an eternal redemption for us to purify our consciences, to serve him. That means being honest about ourselves. It doesn't mean I have to take on an attitude of, of being guilty or ashamed of who I am or how God has made me or what he's entrusted to me. That's not the point. But it is about advancing the scope of Christ's redemptive work by loving our neighbors as ourselves. 
My mom was on hospice care for the last four months of her life. It was a pretty painful time. But it was also really sweet and, uh, and very rich, and God did some powerful work there. As mom was getting close to the end of her life, for both of us, I, I, the, things that, the things that we would get upset with each other over suddenly seemed much less important. And I could be honest with her and with God and with myself about my own selfishness, my own impatience, my own irritability. And as I did that, I, I, I started, I've always loved my mom, but I started seeing her differently. I looked forward to being with her. I looked forward to helping her. I looked forward to serving her. I looked forward to blessing her. We had rich times of expressing love and forgiveness and understanding to each other. God did not wipe out the past of our relationship, and most of it was very good. But there are parts that are still painful. There there are scars and wounds there. God does not take that away. It's now part of the story. It's part of who we are, and I can be honest about it, even though it's scary to do that. Because God has helped redeem my relationship with my mom because he's redeemed my relationship with him. Christ has earned, procured for us an eternal redemption. So that now one day, I know there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and there's no more sorrow, no more sickness, and best of all, no more sin My mom loved Jesus, and I loved Jesus, and yet we could butt heads and drive each other crazy, and yet I am confident that because Jesus has secured an eternal redemption, when I see her again, all of that, all of the pain, all of the sin, all of the hurt, it's going to be subsumed. It's just going to be overwhelmed by the worship and the wonder and the glory and the love and the joy and the beauty of Jesus. And we get to experience some of that now as we walk with him. He is at work in you now to purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And we can do that with confidence and with humility Because Christ has secured for us an eternal redemption. That is good news. Father in heaven, thank you so much. What can we say except thank you? And Father, maybe in in some ways we're we're even more like those old covenant believers than, than we might think because... We see you so much more clearly now through Jesus, but what we will become, we do not yet know. And now we see through a glass darkly, and then we will see. Father, help us. Help us to see Jesus, his redemption. Purify our consciences to bring us from dead works into life and honesty and wholeness in you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name.
Amen.